Well, as we're turning in our Bible today to Luke chapter 16, we're coming to one of the parables that is misunderstood by many, because in it, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is commending a crook. But just because Jesus mentions somebody who is evil in a parable, it doesn't mean that he wants us to look like that. When we get to Luke chapter 18, what we're going to find is he mentions the unrighteous judge, but the point of the parable there is to be persistent in prayer, not to be like that unrighteous judge. In our passage today, you'll see that Christ calls this man unrighteous. So Jesus isn't praising this man's integrity. Rather, it's his ingenuity. It's his ingenuity as we're going to see that this man used his present opportunities to prepare for the future. And that's the point of the parable. That's going to become very clear when we get to verses 8 through 9. But before we get there and unpack the rest of this parable, I want you to look with me as we read the passage in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. In Luke 16, 1, it says, Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him, and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away this management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take and write your bill and, and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing, in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will, be, who will then give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, as you look at this passage, I want you to notice there in Luke 16, 1, you see the word also. And so what this tells us is Jesus is continuing this teaching that we saw in Luke chapter 15. There you'll recall that there were three parables. And in those parables, Jesus was talking about how God rejoices over even one sinner who comes home. And as Jesus is talking to the disciples here, he's continuing this teaching. And, and the last parable we looked at was the prodigal son. And you'll remember in Luke 15, 13, we saw where this wayward son squandered the resources that had been given to him by his father. And you'll notice here in Luke 16, 1, it says this steward or manager was reported to him as also squandering his possessions. Now, this steward is behaving like the younger son. He's, he's looking like the one in the previous parable who wasted what had been given to him. Now, the difference is here, this isn't given to him as his possessions. It's entrusted to him to manage. 
the man is a very wealthy person. Uh, the, the master here is not speaking of God in heaven. It's speaking of a very affluent person who has a, a large number of holdings, land, uh, crops, oil, various things as we see. And this steward has been entrusted. So the word steward or manager is the Greek word oikonomos. We get our word economy from it. But it's a, it's a double word, oikos, which means a house, and namas, which means law. So he's literally the law of the house. And what that tells you is he's not the one who owns it, but he's the one who runs it. He's the guy responsible for everything that happens. He handles the decisions. He makes payments. He runs things, but not for his own personal benefit. He's supposed to be representing his master. And, and it's the purposes and interests of the owner that should be in mind. Back when I was going through seminary in Dallas, uh, my wife and I lived behind a, a white-pillared mansion in Highland Park for a couple of years. If you're familiar with Dallas, you know Highland Park is a very affluent little town within the, the city of Dallas. It's where Jerry Jones and others like him live. And there was this white-pillared mansion that had this three-car servant's Above the three-car garage in the back, there were these servants' quarters. And we were given the opportunity to live in this home uh, in, the, in the maid's quarters. Uh, and we were exchanging some of our rent for things we would do for the family. For instance, whenever the family was out of town, we would move into the big house. And we would manage uh, the mansion. We would take care of everything that needed to be looked after while the family was gone. Sometimes when the mom and dad traveled, they left their kids. And my wife and I watched over the kids. Uh, we took care of them, got them to school, fed them, did all the things that needed to be done. And the family would leave uh, money for us to do these things. Anything that needed to be fixed, we could take out of that when it was time to take the kids to eat. They, they would give us large amounts of money and say, just take the kids out to eat. I mean, there was enough money there to eat out at Ruth Chris Steakhouse every night of the week <laughs> with these kids. Now, we didn't do that. Um, what we often did was took the money, went and bought groceries, we'd cook and feed the kids, and occasionally we'd go out to a restaurant, but it was always a, a lower-cost restaurant. Uh, the keys to the cars were there in the house when they left, and uh, this man who was a doctor had this literal race car. We would hear it start up at 3 in the morning when he'd get called out to go to a medical emergency, and so when he was gone, the keys to the car were there, but I didn't get in this high-performance car and go race up and down Beverly Drive uh, where we were living. Had I done those things, what do you think this family would have heard if we were out at Ruth Chris every night and I was racing up and down the road in his race car when he got home? What kind of report would the neighbors and friends say, hey, we saw Roger and Kim wasting your money? And that's what's happening here because when it says that this steward is reported the greek word is diabolo it's where we get our english word diabolical so the reports that are given about him are not very good and verse 2 says the master called him and said what is this i hear about you give an account for your stewardship for you can no longer be steward he's he doesn't give a defense the guy knows he's guilty he's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar he gets fired and faced with unemployment this manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away the stewardship from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. He says, what am I going to do? And it leads to what we saw in verses 4 through 7 where he comes in and he starts cutting the bills that are owed to his master. 
And this is where we have a problem with this parable, right? This is where we struggle because we say this guy was already getting fired for mismanaging the money. He didn't steal the money. He had mismanagement. He was overusing, squandering resources. And so we say, well, now he adds insult to injury, right? He's walking out the door, and what he does is he cuts the master's holdings. And the kicker to the whole story is the master commends the guy for doing this. Now, if you just lost 50% of your holdings in oil, 20% in wheat, would you commend him or would you call the cops? I think we'd want to call the cops, right? But before we do that, let's delve a little deeper into this passage, into the scripture and the culture to understand what's really going on in this passage. One way to understand what's happening here is just to think about what goes on in our day. Some of you have portfolios where you have money managers who watch over your portfolio. And that person receives a commission, a percentage of your portfolio for managing it. That's, that's their professional fee for handling your, your money. Others of you are realtors, and when you sell a house for a client, you receive a commission, a percentage of the sale price on the home. Now, if you're a money manager, if you're a realtor, if you're some other professional who, who gets a commission, you as a, as a person could eliminate your, your, your commission. You could give back that to the owner. You could just remove it from the purchase price, so to speak, and it would not affect the principal one penny. You would not be taking anything from the owner. So one option is that that's what this guy does, is this manager is fired. He knows he's not going to be there to collect the fees anymore, so he takes that off the account. The second option, which I believe is the better one here, is that what he's doing is removing the interest that's been rolled into the original IOU. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that in God's law, he said when a Jew loaned something to another Jewish person, they were not to charge interest. The Bible was explicit. In, in, in Exodus twenty two twenty five, it says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. Leviticus twenty five thirty six says, do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. Deuteronomy 23.19 tells us, You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You see, God's law said whether it was clothing, a commodity, money, whatever you were loaning, you were only to recoup the principal that you gave. Now, if you were the person who was running the risk or laying your resources out and you were getting nothing back but the principal, how would you feel about that? That's not really a good deal for you, is it? And so what happened in that day is they set up a system to go around God's law where they still appeared righteous, but they were, they were taking this interest that God's law had prohibited. So you have somebody like this man who's very affluent, has large amounts of resources, so God's law said you should share what you had been blessed with with others who had need. And so to still appear righteous and innocent, you hired a steward, a money manager, And what you said to that person is, uh, you handle the books, and you know how to handle the books, right? And so when a loan was made, you would go in and you would add interest into the principal. We know this because there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and he tells us that the people who oversaw the courts, who were the people who oversaw the courts? The scribes were the lawyers, the Pharisees were the experts in the law, so the religious leaders 
said this is how you follow the letter of the law, but you also get around the law. I'm quoting from the writings of Josephus. He said, when you write a promissory note, don't say, I will pay Reuben 10 core of wheat on the 1st of Nisan. That would be in the month of uh, March or April. He says, and if I do not, I will pay four core of wheat annually in addition. So that would be 10 was the principal 4% interest. So what they said is, instead, make it to say, I owe Reuben 14 core of wheat. Do you see what happens? You've rolled the interest into the principal. The promissory note says you owe 14 core of wheat when all you borrowed was 10. And everybody patted themselves on the back, said, wink, wink, nobody's the wiser. But everybody knew what was going on, including God. And it's God's son who's standing here teaching to the disciples. It's not just that the disciples are the direct audience, but the people who are all uh, part of the system who are usually the ones borrowing the money, and then those who set up the system, the religious leaders. I want you to look at verse 14. We're going to come to verse 14 next week, but there it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. This word for scoffing is also translated as sneer or ridicule. It's when Christ was hanging on the cross, they walked by and they scoffed at him. They mocked him. So the religious leaders are hearing Jesus pull back the curtain on the hidden system and say, look, everybody knows what's going on here. And they get mad. They hate Jesus. They hate the fact that he's revealing everything and telling them that it's wrong. He says the first man owes 100 measures of oil. Now, this would be about 800 to 875 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. It would take about 150 mature olive trees to produce this amount of olives that would then have to be pressed and processed in order to get 800 gallons of raw oil. And oil was a very valuable as well as volatile commodity because it took a long time to grow an olive tree that could produce this kind of oil, this many olives. And you had 150 of them, so it's huge vineyards. And, and then there were things that could affect it. There could be a drought, there could be pestilence, there could be a war. And so historians tell us there was 100% interest on olive oil. How much was the bill cut here? 100%. Cuts it in half. The next bill was reduced by 20%. Now the interest rate on wheat was lower because there were more fields. It was a seasonal crop. Uh, so even if there was a, something that happened over here in this area, it could be overcome in this area. And then if the whole wheat harvest was wiped out, there was the barley harvest that came afterwards. So the interest rate was lower uh, on this because there were less things that could affect the yield. And uh, the interest rate was said to be between 20 and 30%, which is, again, in line with how much the bill is reduced here. Now, 100 measures of wheat was equal to 1,000 bushels, which would take 100 acres of well-cultivated land. And if you suddenly reduced what you owed by 200 bushels, that would take away 20 acres of land for you to have to work to repay the debt. If somebody came in and suddenly relieved you of a burden of 20 acres of land, uh, working it and paying it back, would this guy be your new best friend? Would he make your Christmas card list? Yeah, you'd say, man, thank you. If there's anything I can do for you ever, you let me know. Same thing, the guy who was relieved of 50% of his, his price of oil, he's saying, hey, I'll do you right. You need something, come see me. 
And while these are two examples given here, the passage alludes to the fact that there were even more. In verse 5, the form of the verb that is there is progressive, which tells us there would have been a long line of happy, smiling people walking out of this manager's office. And so if you're the steward who's just done this and this rich man is looking on, uh, he doesn't call the cops because if he does, what's he going to tell the police? Oh, he's removing the illegal interest that I added in that the law said you shouldn't do? And so he's caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. And so all he can do is shake his head and say, man, this guy is good. He says, you're shrewd, dude. You're really good. You're still fired, but you're, you're really shrewd, right? I mean, if this guy had just done this in his real job, if he had just been this wise in the way he managed the money, he'd still have a job. But he says to him, I've got to hand it to you. The world says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so he takes his present situation and he sets himself up so that others will be standing in line to take care of him. And that's what this parable is about. Jesus says here in Luke 16, 8 through 9, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. That's us as believers. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves. Now he's talking to us as Christians. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness or the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Do you see what that says? Heaven. It says when this life is over on this earth is the point of what Jesus is pointing to. You know, when I was a cop, I saw a lot of criminals who were very smart. They put a lot of brain power and effort into their schemes. And when I'd arrest these folks and I'd be taking them to jail, I'd, I'd say to several of them, man, why don't you just put that same energy and effort into an honest living? You would do really, really well for yourself. And that's what this steward should have been doing. And it's what we should be doing. Jesus isn't saying, hey, look, for 15 chapters, I've been telling you to love others and love God. And guess what? That's not working. So go ahead, do it the world's way. Lie, cheat, steal, do whatever. That's not the application. What Jesus is telling us here is, he says, as this guy faced losing his job, he says he realized he needed to look to the future. Beyond just where he was, and he needed to do something to prepare for what was to come so that others would welcome him. And as it applies to us, I want you to remember Luke 16, 1 said, Jesus is talking to the disciples. These are believers, followers in Jesus Christ. If you call yourself a Christian, if you're a man or a woman who has come to faith in Christ, then you're a follower of his. He, he speaks of us being sons of light, and that applies to you as a Christian. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11 tells us this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. See, Jesus isn't saying lie, cheat, and steal like the world does. He says, don't do those things. But what he says is, we're to be light, shining in the darkness. Not only revealing the wrong things, but also revealing the way home to the Lord. Pointing people to Christ in the way they get home to heaven. 
He says that we are to take what we have in the world like mammon or wealth. The word mammon is an Aramaic word that, that speaks of something of great value. That's why it's often applied to money, but it can be anything that is uh, of, of value in the world. And he says, use it to get the good news of the gospel out. Now, if it bothers you to read here the mammon that's labeled as unrighteousness, I want you to remember that money is amoral. What that means is it's neutral. Money itself is not bad or good. It's what we do with it that makes it bad or good. It's like saying grain is evil because people make alcohol and people become alcoholics or squander their money on, on liquor. Well, grain is also used to make bread that feeds people. So it's what we do with something that makes it good or bad. Now, somebody sitting here may be thinking, well, Roger, if that's the case, then why does the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? You ever heard that? Money is the root of all evil. I have people tell me that on a regular basis, and I'll say, can you show me where it says that in the Bible? And they'll go, well, it's in there, isn't it? I, I, I think it's in the book of second hesitations. <laughs> now, there's no book of second hesitations, uh, but there should be because it contains everybody's favorite Bible verses, right? <laughs> God wants me to be happy, or God helps those who help themselves, or this one, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible actually tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10 is this. For the love of money is a root, not the root. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. You see, it's not money, but it's the coveting of money. It's the love of money. It's when that becomes our focus. It's when that becomes our pursuit. When, when we think that's what life is all about, is building a portfolio or the property or the stuff, and, and we, we hold on to it and say, it's mine. Look at my kingdom. God says, that's where the problems come. Now, let me tell you something. You don't have to be rich to have a problem with coveting money or other things. I've talked to people many a time who, who don't have much that are lovers of money. And their whole world is wrapped up in how can they have a little bit more or counting what they have or, or thinking about nothing but money. And on the other end, I've, I've talked to many a people who are very affluent, who release their riches, who say this is just something to be used for the good of the gospel or other things to get the, the message of God out. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, if I had, if I had a lot of money, I'd, I'd be happy to give a lot. I'd, I'd be one of those people. No, you wouldn't. Now, why do I say you wouldn't be? Well, because Jesus says you wouldn't be. Do you remember at the end of this parable, he talks about how if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot? He says, what are you doing with what you already have? Are you really being faithful in what I've already entrusted to you? Now, you may be saying, but Roger, I don't have much. I don't have a whole lot to live on. There was a person who was uh, named Peter Marshall. Dr. Marshall was the chaplain of the United States Senate. And he had a man come to him one day with a problem. As this person talked to Dr. Marshall about his problem, he said, Dr. Marshall, I've been tithing for most of my life. And tithing is where you give 10% of your income. The Bible says a tithe is the biblical standard that acknowledges the superiority of, of another like God. And so when we give 10%, we're saying, God, 
I recognize you're superior. I recognize what I have is yours. And so this man said, I've been giving 10% of my income most of my life. And he said, when I was making $20,000 a year, uh, you know, I was giving 2000 a year and that was okay. And then he said, but now I make $500,000. And, and, and there's no way I can afford to give God $50,000 a year. And Peter Marshall said, well, I see you have a problem. And he didn't give any advice. He simply said, um, I think we ought to pray about this. Is that okay? And the man said, yes, that'd be great. Will you pray for me? So they bowed their head, and, and Dr. Marshall said, he, he prayed with boldness and authority, Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, would you reduce his salary back to the place <laughs> where he can afford to tithe? Does anybody want me to pray that prayer for you? <laughs> this guy's saying, look, I could live on 18000 a year, but now I can't afford to live on 450000 a year. I've got a problem. You know, isn't it funny how big a dollar looks when we give it to God, but when we go to the corner store to buy something, it looks so small? Now, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to, listen, if you're going, I knew it. This is why I don't come to church. They always want my money. <laughs> Just relax. The offering plate has already been passed. You're not coming around for seconds. You're safe. We're not taking another offering. You know, what you give is between you and God, but what you give is, is a big determiner about what's going on inside your life. And, and what we need to realize is what we have, none of it is ours anyway. We saw that in a previous parable where we don't own anything. The Bible is very clear that everything, everything we have, from the breath in our bodies to the, the strength that we have to the skills that we have, those have been given by God. The, the strength and ability we have to make a living and the stuff that we earn, you can say, I work for this. Wonderful, I did too. But it all belongs to God. In the book of Haggai, we're told in chapter 2, verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalm 104, 24 tells us, the earth is full of your possessions, God, not mine or yours. King David, as he thought of God and all God had given to him, he said in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee and from thy hand we have given thee. As you look at what God has given to you, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? Men and women, we are stewards. We are managers. We don't own anything. We are merely to be operating on the best interest of our master. And what God says here is, I want you to take what I've entrusted to you and use it in the present so that in the future, you will have people who will welcome you into heaven. What that's talking about in Luke 16, 9, he says, when we get to our eternal dwellings, will you be people poor? Will there be anybody who is able to come up to you one day in heaven and say, I am here because you gave. Because you gave of your time and shared the gospel with me or somebody who shared it with me in turn. Will they say you supported a missionary or a ministry that taught the word of God and because of that I heard the good news? You see, what Jesus is telling us here is to use our present opportunities 
so that when we get to the future, we will be welcomed into our eternal dwelling by others who are there because of what we gave. Now, ultimately, the Bible is very clear. God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. So you can say, well, I'm not going to give. And if you don't, that's fine. God's work will get done through somebody else. And what you miss out on are the rewards. Sharing in the rewards of somebody coming to faith. There is a day coming, whether you recognize this or not, where we're all going to get fired. We're all going to get fired, so to speak. Because there is a day coming where God is going to say, today your time is up. You're no longer steward or manager over the things you have, over the life that you have. Your time is up and you're coming to see me. And on that day when you're fired, what will be waiting for you in heaven? Jesus tells us here, don't squander what you've been given, but instead seize the opportunities. Invest your time, your talents, your treasures in ways that, that will help others to hear the good news of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4.1 tells us we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Friends, this is the most valuable stewardship any of us have ever been given. We have the words of eternal life. We have God's word. He says you are stewards of this. What are you doing with it? In this book, Jesus tells us in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Are you getting that good news of the gospel out to others? You see, what this parable is about, Jesus says, learn a good lesson from a bad example. He says, use the present time and material things you've been entrusted with for the purpose of having others come to know him. Do you remember the three previous parables? God rejoices when even one person comes to know him. And he says, we have the privilege of being a part of that work through what has been entrusted to us. Now, in verses 10 through 13, Jesus continues talking about this principle of stewardship. He says, he who is faithful in, in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And then he gives us two questions that flesh out this principle. He says, if therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, what he says here is money management is not a little thing. It's not a little thing. He says there are no little things because everything we do has bigger ramifications. And what we do with what we have, what we do with what we've been entrusted with, points to the future. Not only in will God give us more because we've been faithful in a little, but also eventually in eternity, what rewards will be waiting. You see, money or mammon, anything of wealth or value is like a sight glass on a, on a cauldron. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a restaurant or at a banquet, and they've got this big coffee pot, you know, and you're, you're walking up, or there's a tea uh, container there, and you're wondering, is there anything in there? You don't want to shake it and spill it all over you. A lot of times, they have a little sight glass. You know what I'm talking about? There's that little window on the thing that shows you whether there's liquid inside and at what level. And what God is telling us is money is like a sight glass to our lives, he says, I can peek through that with what you're doing, with what I've entrusted to you, and it tells me what's going on on the inside. So again, as you think about what's going on in your life by what you're doing with things, what would Jesus say to you? 
Another way to think of this is to put everything in its proper perspective. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I get that it's hard to take the long view. So many of us are focused right now on right where we are. Can I pay this bill? Can I make this thing? Can I, can I turn that deal? And what Jesus says is, to get a proper perspective, it would be like thinking of a time you got on an airplane. Have you ever flown on a plane and as you're taxiing down the runway, you're kind of looking out that little side window and you see, you know, the cars and trucks and buildings and everything looks, you know, so big. It's right. It's in its proper perspective, we think, because that's where we see it on earth. But as you take off and you start to get higher and higher and you're looking out the window, what happens to those things that look so big while you were sitting on the ground? They start to shrink, don't they? You know, a car is a little dot. Even a, a locomotive that maybe was tooling along at 50 miles an hour down the tracks when you're high up, it looks like a little toy that's barely moving. You look down and see that train just kind of inching along. Even houses or high-rises that were so massive when we were standing in front of them, they're just little specks the higher you get up into heaven. And this is the perspective God wants us to have. He wants us to realize that while we're here on earth, there is a time coming where we're going to get higher and higher and ultimately in heaven. And he says, as you look out the window and you realize the proper perspective of things, those things fade away. And he says, what you've done with what you've had while you were here on earth will determine the rewards that you have when you get to heaven. There are only two things that last for all eternity. The word of God and the eternal souls of people. And so when it comes to what we're investing in, Jesus says, are you investing in the things that will last? The things that have eternal value? Getting the the message of the word into the lives of people so that one day they may be with you in heaven. He says to us, we get to help have our neighbors in heaven. We get to have people that one day when we enter our eternal dwellings, they will welcome us because of what we've done here on earth. So as you think about this passage today, the principle is God wants us to live our lives sharing what we have from our time to our treasures so that when we get to heaven, we won't be people poor. That there will be people there who because of what we did will have heard the good news of the gospel. And we'll be there to welcome us when we get home into heaven. Now we've been talking about eternity. We've been talking about God and his love for us. And as we come to the communion table today, what we're going to see is how God took care of how we would all get into heaven. What eternity really looks like for us. You see, what God said to us is, I love you. I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. If you think that what we've been talking about today in terms of how much money you give to church, how many good things you do will get you into heaven, then you've missed the message. Because the Bible is very clear that we do not get to God by what we've put in the plate or how good we've been because none of us are good enough. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. So if what you've heard this morning from me is, well, if I give enough money to church or I do enough good things, I will get into heaven. That is not what I said. That is not what God says. 
What God tells us is the only way we get to heaven is through what his son did when he went to the cross and he died to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And as we come to the communion table today, we remember that and we celebrate that because Jesus came and he gave his life dying on the cross to pay the penalty of death we owe for our sins. That's what Romans 6.23 tells us. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we know, freedom is not free. An entrance into heaven was not free. It is free to us because it cost us nothing, but it cost God everything. It cost him his only begotten son who gave his life to die for me and you to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And so in a moment, the elements are going to be passed. You're going to see a piece of bread. And that bread represents the body of Jesus. He took on flesh and blood so that he could go to the cross and ultimately shed his blood. And that's what the cup represents. The cup of grape juice represents his blood that was shed to wash away my sins and yours. And so if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus, you've never asked God to be your savior, you've never realized that it's not by what I do, but instead what Jesus did for me. But now you realize and you understand that, no, it is a gift. I can't buy it, I can't earn it, but I can receive it, and you're ready to do that. Then as the elements are passed, take the piece of bread representing his body. Take the cup and hold those. Say to God, thank you. Thank you for this precious gift. Thank you for giving your son to give me eternal life. Today I'm receiving you, Jesus, as my personal savior. And as you do those things, Romans 10:9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And you'll become a child, a son or daughter of God's. If you're somebody here who's already received Jesus as your Savior, take the bread and take the cup as well. And use this as a time to say to God, as, as before, thank you. Thank you for this precious gift. Thank you for dying for me. And if you have any sin in your life that you've not yet confessed, then, then take this time just to say to God, I'm sorry for those sins. The Bible tells us to come with clean hands and hearts. This table is open to all who are believers in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Wayside, just a son or a daughter of God. So if you're a believer and you're ready to receive communion, then as the elements are passed, would you take and hold them and we'll take them together. Will you serve us, please? We've been talking about giving. And giving is a response of love. And what we're celebrating now is how God gave to us because of his great love. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Jesus came. He took on flesh and blood. He became our sacrifice because he knew we owed a penalty, a penalty we could not pay. As he went to the cross, he gave his body to be nailed to the cross. He had to have flesh and blood because the Bible tells us there had to be a sacrifice for sin. There were plenty of sacrifices offered before in the temple, but those could not remove the penalty of sin. They were just like temporary payments on a credit card, barely paying on the interest, but the principle remained. But when Jesus came, John the Baptist said of him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This piece of bread represents our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life so that we could have the gift of eternal life, eat it in remembrance of him.
in this cup, it's just juice to us, but what it represents is the precious blood of Jesus. Blood that had to be shed, blood that had to be poured out in order to wash away our sins. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it had to be the perfect and permanent sacrifice of Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world to remove our sins. That's why he said in John 19.30, it is finished, literally paid in full. What he paid in full was the debt of sin that I and you owed for our sins. The blood of Jesus that has washed us clean. Drink it in remembrance of him. Join me in prayer, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that points us to the one who loved us, who came and died for us. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. The one in John 1, 1 who tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus, you came as God in the flesh, walking the earth, living a perfect and sinless life to ultimately pay the penalty for our sins. We thank you that you loved us so much you willingly laid down your life, shedding your blood so that one day we could walk through the gates of heaven. Father, we thank you not only for the gift of your son, but also the, the gift, the stewardship of the mysteries of God. As 1 Corinthians tells us, we thank you you've entrusted us and allowed us the privilege of being part of your work. And so as believers, as children of yours, would we be faithful to follow through? Would we use the present gifts you've given to us of our time, our talents, and our treasures to spread the good news of the gospel? So that when we walk through the gates of heaven, we will not be people poor, but we will see others who are there that can say thank you for giving to the Lord. Thank you for what you did. Because of what you shared, I am here to welcome you home. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the privilege we have to take part in his work. May we be found faithful to do these things. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.